Today's episode is brought to you each and every week by Caffeine Gum Australia. So I first tried Caffeine Gum when I played at the Melbourne Rebels in 2015 and immediately fell in love with it. It's easily the best caffeine supplement I've ever had for training or games. And even to this day, even though I don't play anymore, I still have it before every gym session and every training session, particularly early mornings. Comes in three good flavors, and with 100 milligrams of caffeine, it really packs a punch as well. So try some today at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. And ladies and gentlemen, we're back. Welcome to this week's edition of the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast in the world. Before I introduce today's very special guest, can I ask that if you enjoy listening to this podcast or any of our podcasts, that you subscribe on whatever your preferred platform is. And please make sure you follow us on social media at Wandering Bear Sports for both Facebook and Instagram. Your support is truly appreciated. Okay, guys, this week's guest on the podcast is Austin Gilgroney's back rower, Lachlan McCaffrey. As well as representing the Brumbies and the Western Force, and the Waratahs, Lockie has played overseas for London Wells, Leicester Tigers, and Kuden Voltex in Japan. I hope I said that right. Uh, Lockie's got a really unique perspective on a career in professional sport, and he's, he's really open and honest about some of the ups and downs that he's encountered through his journey. Um, he's got a great story, and it was an absolute pleasure for, for me to speak to him. <sighs> Okay, this week's guest on the podcast is Austin Gilgroney's back rower, Lachlan McCaffrey. As well as representing the Brumbies, Western Force and the Waratahs, Lockie has played overseas for London Welsh, Leicester Tigers and Kuden Voltex in Japan. I hope I said that right, Lockie. Apologies if I didn't. Lockie has a unique perspective on a career in professional sport and is refreshingly open and honest about the ups and downs in his career. He has a really great story, and I really, really enjoyed speaking to him. Um, so without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the great Lachlan McCaffrey. How are you, mate? Mate, I'm all right. I'm all right. I've been better. Still, um, it's feeling a bit better from COVID, but I tested. Um, I went and got a test today to try and get cleared, and I'm still positive. So, yeah, I'm just in, just in um, isolation pretty much, but... You know, what do you do? Have you um, have you had the 5G as of yet? The what? The, va- the vaccine? No, I probably should have got it. Um, when I got to America, all the boys in the team had had it, et cetera. But you kind of, I was going to get it. And then you get here in Texas and, like, no one even talks about it. Like, it's just like, it's a non-event kind of thing. And I just really just... I, I went straight into playing as soon as I arrived. And, um, yeah, people, some people say, you know, you can get knocked around a bit once you get the vaccine for a few days. So I thought, oh, I'll just don't worry about it kind of thing. And then three yeah. days before I fly to Japan, I got the – I was feeling – started feeling a little bit crappy and got the test anyway because you need it for travel and came back positive. So I've been um, in isolation since then, just waiting to – yeah. Get better. No, I guess obviously with the way Sydney is at the moment, it's it's probably the big topic. How yeah. how's how's it been? How are you feeling? Like mate, it's so yeah, it's nuts. Like I like I like in the mornings um, tuning into the news back in Sydney or like opening up my news apps and seeing what's going on and just 
you don't hear or like read anything back home apart from COVID. Like crazy, mate. Because I've been in Japan um, the last year, and um, you know the Japanese just treat it like a flu kind of thing. Like you wash your hands, you stay tidy. You're, they're pretty so good at social distancing anyway. Like um, you know, everyone's super super hygienic over there. And then coming to Texas, where you know um, there's a big majority of people here that just um, get on with life and they're, they're more focused about freedom of being able to work and do everyday things and then just, you know, being, being scared, catching COVID. So I've kind of been living in two areas that are probably as opposite as you can get to Sydney and their lockdowns at the moment. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's been, um, it's been interesting, man. Like I'm just, I'm just really lucky that um, I can work and, um, you know, I can live in two really cool places. The downside is obviously getting COVID now. Um, but to be honest, mate, like I'm, I'm fine. There are a few days there where I got hit with the man flu and I was, you know, just in bed, sleep, Netflix and that. But um, all in all, um, I'm fine. And, um, now I've got antibodies to it. I might, you know, the hardest thing is just being away from home and being away from family. Um, and, you know, any travel that you you might get, you know, through throughout my career, if I've ever had two or three weeks off, you kind of quickly jet home and see your family and your loved ones. Where now you can't do that anymore. It's like 10, 15 grand for a flight and then you've got to pay extra on for quarantine and then you don't actually get time with the family because then, any rugby breaks only about two to three weeks and you just spend that in a hotel room. So that's mentally, that's been the, the hardest thing, mate, but there's all, there's always someone worse off. So I can't, um, I can't complain. Yeah, true, true. I, I guess it's, I don't want to talk about it too much because I, I, it's, you know, I'm fucking bored of it, to be honest. How, um, how's Austin been, mate? Have you, have you enjoyed the major league? What's it like living in Austin? Talk to us about that. Mate, I've absolutely loved it. Hey, I um, I first came to Austin when I used to play in the UK. I would get like five, six weeks off every year, and um, it always I, I've I've always loved travel. Like the best thing about rugby over the last ten years has been the places I've, I've visited and people I've met. And I always on the way back from the UK to see my family in Sydney, I'd always do a trip of some sort. And one year, I, um, I the major league was just starting. Like it was about, it was probably four years ago, their first year. And I've got a mate of mine, Sam Windsor. He's uh, the backs coach and five. I know Sam. I know Sam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and um, I reached out to him, and I was just like, "Hey, mate, I'm gonna come to New York and Texas and just do a bit of a trip." So I flew in. I saw some mates in New York. Then I flew to Houston. I did like a few days training with him at Houston and then I hired a Mustang, drove from there to Austin and just reached out on Facebook to some Aussies in Austin and stayed with them for like four or five days um, and had an unreal time. Um, I've always loved America, but especially Texas and like the people you meet in the South and just uh, the kind of friendly vibe you get here. Um, and ever since then, I was always kind of interested in the MLR and how it was going and, um, you know, possibly at some point getting to play in America, but even even ideal dream situation would be playing in Austin. And then um, 
fast forward four years later and, um, you know, the opportunity came out. I, I know Sam Harris um, quite well, you know, excellent coach. He's been in Japan at Rico and then he came here. Um, first head coach role for him. He'd been, I think, attacking backs and that did some D stuff at Rico, but first head coach role here and had a chat last year. And we didn't know if it was going to work with the Japan season I'd already signed on to, etc. cetera. Um, but we made it work. And um, after waiting and having some visa issues, that was probably the hardest bit. And then finally getting here and wasn't able to play too long in the season because I only got here right at the end. But, um, Mate, absolutely loved it. Like, I love watching, um, you know, tuning into the Major League Network and stuff each week and watching the games they play um, live and then just getting here and seeing how big it's become in such a short time um, and how many people are investing in it here and, and are backing it is is um, something that's really exciting. And, yeah, I just, um, I'm sure it will go from strength to strength in the next few years too. How's it been received, uh, in your opinion, by the general public? Because just as an outsider who looks at it, I'm going, they're spending all this money. Like, how are the investors going to get a return on it? So yep. what's, what's your take on how the American public's bought into it and how that's all tracking? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, in, terms of, in terms of fans, like, you know, uh, they got about uh, seven and a half, eight thousand to the final on the weekend. Um, but but that was with know, restrictions. That was with restrictions, so that was probably the most they could have. Yeah, and they it's in a huge um, stadium, the Coliseum, so it's pretty big. But you know, seven and a half, eight thousand in in LA when it's a first first pro rugby team, I think you know a huge accomplishment for the organisation there with Adam Fire, etc., doing a good job. Um, you know, the, like American sports, all about the spectacle, um, yeah. people come to watch the rugby, obviously, but like, it's what's happening before games. It's what's happening at halftime. Like no one does it better than the Americans. Like, you know, there would be activities for the kids. Um, you know, we had one night at Austin, it was like $1 beers for people. Every single home game was themed. They've got fireworks after every game. Kids come onto the field and meet the players. Um, like, I've never been anywhere that do it kind of better than, than the Americans in, in that kind of sense. So, um, you know, the crowds will grow. Um, and in terms of ownership and people putting in money, I guess, um, you know, the good thing about private ownership, et cetera, mate, is you've got, you've got guys that have, normally done really well successfully in the, in the business world and they just love rugby. They've just got a really passion, like a huge passion for rugby and, and it's their way of giving back. I don't think every businessman that buys a rugby team um, necessarily thinks he's going to make a profit on that rugby team. It's just a passion and it's a way of, um, you know, giving back to a sport they love and they've done really well successfully business-wise, so they've got money to spend. So, um I think a lot of the teams over here are run like that. And, um, you know, I think it's a really cool way to be run, mate. Like it's, you know, that's where you've got extra money to spend on flying the Giltinis to, to Vegas for two nights because they won the comp. They've got extra money to pay for fireworks after every home game. They've, you know, like it's um, the opportunities are endless over here, mate. And, um, you know, 
as as long as more people are are playing rugby locally and and more people are coming over to experience living in America and playing in the MLR, I I can't see how it won't be successful in the next five to ten years. Do do you think that private ownership spectacle, you know, event type feel would work in Australia? I do, mate. Yeah, like I um I haven't seen it firsthand, but like what Twiggy's done at Force, I think he's kind of not copied um, how the Americans do it, but he's taken a leaf, definitely a leaf out of the book from how they, they run sports over here, mate, with concerts at, after the game and before game. And instead of getting ten to 15,000 at a game, you end up getting twenty five to 30. It's a win-win. Um, you know, the, the atmosphere is better. More, you know, it's um, for the players, for the fans alike, it's, it's just great. And you get more people, you know, buying tickets at the end of the day. So... Um, yeah, mate, I, I don't like I think it's great um, for all involved and especially along, um, you know, Queenslanders have always um, naturally come out to watch games. Um, but I think both in Canberra and Sydney, they've probably struggled with crowds the last few years. And, um, you know, it's harder there where you don't have private ownership and and, you know, you go to ask for fireworks and the and the GMs and the. CEOs are saying, oh, we don't actually have money for that. So I understand um, that side of things too. You can't just throw money around. But, um, yeah, when you've, when you've got Twiggy as an owner or, or other private owners that, that have lots of money, mate, um, it's a, to me it's a win-win. Mate, one of the things I think would be interesting for us to dig into is you've, you've kind of played in all the continents now. So you've played in Australia, played in Japan, uh, played in US, played in England. Um, how, how do you how do you look at the game in Australia? With because you've you've got a rare you got a rare insight because you've you've experienced all these different cultures. In terms of how the game's going in Australia, how do you see it? Oh, it's a tough question um, because I hate being negative about anything happening in Australia. I think. Um, you know, I've grown up wanting to play for the Wallabies, wanting to play in Australia. Um, you know, I've all my heroes as a kid were all guys playing for the Wallabies. Um, and I couldn't be more passionate about rugby in Australia. Um, at the end of the day, mate, like you probably, you look at any, uh, if you're a businessman, if you're playing rugby, whatever field you're in, and you look at the opportunities that your job can present you. Um, and to me, I just don't think Aussie rugby gives you an, as many opportunities as, as say, elsewhere offshore. Um, and whatever that might be, like if you're playing for your country, if you're playing for the Wallabies, then that's like, that's your number one, like all kids, that's, that's top. But after that, you've got to have more opportunities for, for guys. And if that's making, you know, financial gains, then that's a big tick. Um, if it's playing in a good competition and being able to travel with you, with rugby, you know, for a lot of the time that was um, that you definitely got a tick. Like when I first started playing super rugby and you would travel to South Africa, New, Ze- New Zealand, um, you know, Japan, Argentina now, you know, as a, really good competition where now with the the competition model and the structure and kind of um 
so much change. I don't think you would look at Super Rugby at the moment or Super AU and go, oh, it's one of the top comps in the world. Like, you know, 10 years ago, Super Rugby was the best competition in the world. Um, where, where now I think most people would laugh at you if you said that. Um, you know, the premierships come on leaps and bounds. Um, you see guys playing over in, in France in the European Cup that are like Rory Arnold at Toulouse and are just absolutely loving life and playing really good footy. And now Japan's come on leaps and bounds too, um, you know, with especially the top kind of four to six teams in Japan, I think would compete versus a lot of super rugby teams. So it's kind of gone from, um, you know, one the best tournament in the world to definitely probably you know, not in, not in the top two or three. So, and then when you take out any financial gains that you can make um, back home, you can definitely make, you know, better financial gains offshore. It really, it dwindles away any opportunities that you can make playing rugby in Oz, apart obviously from playing for your country. That's, that's number one. But apart from that, mate, um, not trying to not, you know, trying not to be negative, but you can definitely make more opportunities offshore now, which is, um, which is a shame. Yeah, it's probably a tough question. How, how did you get your start in professional rugby? Um, mate, so I played all my junior rugby with Eastwood um, and also went to Riverview um, and played like the, you know, normal GPS schoolboy stuff in year 12. Um, went into the academy at the Waratahs um, with, a, with I listened to the Rob Horn podcast um, today's unbelievable human being and, and rugby player. So I left school with like him, Kane Douglas, Damien Fitzpatrick, kind of in that group um, and went to the academy together all in different stages. Obviously, Robbie was playing super pretty much straight away, but did a lot of my academy stuff with Fitzy and, and Kane Douglas um, and um, was thinking about going to Sydney Uni, met up because I was doing, doing an economics degree at, at Sydney Uni, approached them, but they wanted a lot of guys going into Colts um, and I didn't really want to go from schoolboys to playing Colts. Wanted to, I always found skillfully, et cetera, and reading the game, I always thought I was all right at, but probably physically was a, was a big step up for me to try and toughen me up and um, play men. So I wanted to play grade. So um, luckily played all my juniors at Eastwood um, and Chris Hickey was the first grade coach then met, met up with him. And um, Chris said, yeah, good idea, mate. Come play grade, start in third grade um, and go from there. So he put me in Fitzy in third grade. Fitzy was, Fitzy was uh, captain of Aussie schoolboys the year before. He didn't want to play Colts either. So we both started in third grade and just slowly moved up from there, mate. And um, luckily for, for me, Chris was really, really good man, really good coach. He looked after me like a almost a father figure style coach back then. Um, and he went from Eastwood first grade coach with his success there and got the, the top job at the Waratahs. Um, and I kind of slowly moved up from academy positions to, to a full contract there after two or three years under him and guys like Scott Wisemantle too, who is, um, who is a attack and backs coach now and an excellent coach also. So that's kind of my from leaving school to my first super, super gig. Um, and then just kind of, mate, 
went went from there. So just correct me if I'm wrong. So you went you went Tars then straight to the Brumbies, or did you go over to London Welsh in between there? No, everywhere, mate. So actually, um, I went from Tars. I um, had a for for young young players. It's probably one decision I. I haven't regretted any decisions um, in my rugby career, but this is probably the one I, I do regret. I um, was at the Tars on a two-year deal. Um, they offered me, you know, quite a good deal when I was 20 years old, 21. You know, thought Wycliffe Parlour was the number eight there. They had some good forwards, but they were kind of all getting a little bit older. Um, I signed a two-year deal. And at the end of my first year, I was playing in the semi-final for Eastwood versus Randwick at, at Wallara. And I snapped my ankle in half and broke my tib and fib. It was quite a really nasty break where the ankle's kind of pointing the wrong way. And um, started my rehab and everything. But as most rugby players know, in professional organisations and then most, most setups, if you're playing, if you're important in terms of things, if you're a starting position, then the physios really focus on you. But I was like 20 years old. I was on one of the lower contracts, obviously, at the bottom of the, of the pack. And um, in terms of physios and, like, care I got, rehab-wise, it wasn't probably what I needed. And, mate, I, uh, it, took, it took kind of nine months to come back, nine to 12 months. I came back the following year for Eastwood, um, in 2011, and we ended up winning the Shoot Shield that year. 2011 beat beat a stacked Sydney Uni side um, at Concord Oval, so that was that was great. But like to be honest, I wasn't playing great footy. Like my ankle was still hurting. I had a plate in the ankle still, um, and I was like hobbling around trying to trying to play. But to be, looking back, um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't killing it or anything. Um, and even though I had one more year on my deal, Chris Hickey, unfortunately, um, left the Waratahs. And, um, and Michael Foley, I don't know if you know Michael Foley, he was a forwards coach. He got the um, top job. And um, he reached out to my manager at the time, which was actually, it was actually Dickie, with, who you know well. And um, they said, oh, even though he's got one more year on his deal, you know, we don't want to play him next year. We think his ankle's pretty rubbish. Um, and, yeah, could you get him off our books? So Dickie um, reached out to the force. Richard Graham was there, Nick Stiles, Phil Blake, guys like that, and um, got me a two-year offer then. And at the time, um, like, I was a Sydney boy. Like, I was real homeboy. I've got nine brothers and one sister. I was living at home. 15 minutes from training, like everything was great. But um, when, when like nowadays, when a coach like calls me and says, mate, you're not picked or, um, you know, we want to move you on early in your contract, et cetera. Like to me, I'm, I'm old enough now to realize, oh, mate, like I don't really care. Like you are, it's a business, you know, you owe me 12 months pay. Um, I think I'm better than, than the other back row. So I'm going to back myself. But at 20 years of age, 21, when, um, Michael Foley and the Waratahs said, you know, we want to move you on early. I kind of, I took it really personally. I was like, oh, then I better go. Like, they don't want me. I've got to go. So I signed the two-year deal over at the force and, and went over there. Um, first year over there, I played probably seven or eight games, really got on with with Nick Styles and, and guys like Phil Blake. I thought Phil was a, 
Phil's an excellent coach. It hasn't really had much um, luck apart from over in um, in the Prem. Um, but played a few games. Uh, my ankle got right. I got the plate out of my ankle and started finally actually, you know, feeling quite good. Um, really struggled with homesickness. Um, I know it's still in Australia, but it's like a three-hour time difference most of the year and a five-hour flight. Um, so you barely get home and really struggled there. And to make things worse, at the end of that first year um, during off-season, Michael Foley, after one year, got sacked from the Waratahs and he ended up getting the job before. <laughs> so, mate, you can imagine, imagine yeah. how stressful was during off-season, knowing that the bloke that just got rid of me and thought I was rubbish at the Tars has now come <laughs> I've got one more year left at the four. So, oh, um, no. Things went from bad to worse. I didn't play one year, one game the following year, mate. Like the relationship there was probably as bad as you can get between a, a player and a coach. Um, I was only 21, 22, remember. So like, you know, it wasn't like I had huge amount of pull in the playing group or I was just a, I was a nobody really. But, um, you know, the team, we, first of all, the team went really poorly that year. We didn't, I think we won two or three games. Um, you know, we did have quite a good back row, but no matter what I did, I, I couldn't get a look in. Um, and that was just how it was going to be. And I kind of had to mentally realize that and just, you know, try and get through missing home and not playing footy on the other side of Australia. Um, luckily had some good friends outside of rugby that I kind of, um, linked up with, uh, there was a family over there. Um, Simon and Alison Stewart he's on the board of the force um, friends with Twiggy now and doing really good things over in, in um, rugby over in Perth he's just a great great man really nice family and they kind of took me in and I ended up actually moving into their place to have a little bit more of a family feel um, I'm not someone that likes living by myself or anything so I kind of struggled in that sense over there so got through that that next year mate and um, I actually asked for an early release um, you know, obviously they weren't going to re-sign me. So I said to the force, can I just just let me go and let me go back and play um, first grade at Eastwood and, and just play some footy? Otherwise, like the, the Perth club comp there, no one's really watching. So to try and get a contract, I was only 22, kind of started to worry about what I'm going to do. And um, so they let me go. I went to Eastwood, played the rest of the year. There, just living at home. Um, Johnny Manetti was the coach and get on with Johnny well. Um, we always had a pretty strong, strong team and good, you know, enjoyable footy at Eastwood. And then luckily, Laurie Fisher hit me up in my DMs in, in Twitter and um, asked for a coffee and, and got a gig at the Brums. Just, a, just a, like a pro academy deal, mate. Like it wasn't even a, I think it was like 40, 40 grand for the year. Um, I was 23, but I really didn't have much else. Like there are a few little things from the UK and stuff like that. But man, I was only like 23 years old. I was like, the, I'm way too, I'm way too young to be going over. I had a British passport from my mum's side, luckily. So that kind of helped getting a bit of interest in the UK. But I thought I was way too early. I'd gone from, you know, signing a good two-year deal at the Waratahs and the matter of kind of like two years, I was not playing any footy at all. Um, so probably the best thing I did, mate, I went down to Brums, um, and just worked really hard, played a few games that year. We had a really good team. Benny Moen was the captain, Scott Fardy, um, Pocock was there. 
guys like Jared Butler um, was in the back row too. And you just had like a really, really good, hardworking team. And as my first kind of um, first experience of the Brumbies set up the culture, how professional is down there. And, you know, I always, always remember, I was only there for one season and then I went over London Wells. But I always remember like a, a lot of rugby teams I've been at, um, if, if most of the guys that are starting every week enjoy footy, like that's just, that's not footy. The, the, the other kind of 15 guys in a squad, they're the hard ones to keep happy, etc. And most organisations I've been at, most, most that sort of 16 to 30 guys in the squad are not happy. They're pretty miserable. They're looking for other opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Guys at Brumbies was the first time I'd been in an organisation where, you know, like there was a, such a good culture in terms of they worked really hard. They loved coming to work every day. Um, they wanted to get better. The coaches cared about them. The, the physio backroom staff looked after them like they would anyone else. And I remember leaving the Brumbies after that one year because um, they offered me another pro academy deal, you know, similar, similar rubbish kind of, you know, crappy coin. And I just thought I'm not really going anywhere. Like I'm 23, 24. I wasn't, I was just really stagnant, but I, I left on really good terms. Um, you know, I, I lived with Alan Alatoa that, you know, that year and got on with him and most of my, most of my mates all stayed at the Brums and, but I just felt like I needed like a change. I needed to play footy. Like I, you know, from the age of eight years old, you play footy because you just get to run around for 80 minutes on a Saturday. And the setup then, to be fair, like the Aussie rugby was better in terms of the super rugby sides. The Waratahs won it that year, 2014. Brumbies made finals every single year. Um, like the, you know, the super teams are real class. So if, you, if you're on the fringe of that, you did like three-month pre-seasons and then barely played much footy. Um, and I you know, thought like physically, athletically wise, like you work with the great trainers and you athletically you've made huge gains. But like as an actual rugby player, I actually thought I was probably going backwards. Um, so went over to Singapore 10s actually with the Brahms and London Welsh were there. They just got promoted from the championship to the Prem and um, met up for coffee with um, the coach, Justin Burnell. Um, and signed a one-year deal just at, at London Welsh in the Prem. So um, that was, yeah, first first experience being overseas. I um, if I thought homesickness was bad in in Perth, mate. Times it by ten getting to getting to the UK is a real um, is a real shock. But it was looking back, mate, as the best decision I've probably ever made in terms of in terms of rugby. Um, there's a lot to dig into there. I want to talk about the Brumbies. But yep. the like, I, I did a podcast last week with Dave Diggle, who's the Wallabies mental performance coach, and yep. something that comes up over and over again when I talk to you know guys like yourself is is the mental side and, and struggling to deal with the realities of being a professional rugby player. Because, mate, like I had a very brief experience at the Rebels, but you're judged every single day, you know, every single week, and often publicly, you know, and that's a very weird way for a guy to live his early to mid-20s. Like, it's, it's, there's no jobs like that. How did you learn to deal with that, you know, and, you know, homesickness, 
the expectation, you know, getting a good contract, losing the contract, you know, that, that sort of things. Did you, did you have mentors? Did you talk to people? Or was it something you just learned over time? Yeah, no, it's a good question, mate. It, um, it definitely, um, you build up your adversity to things a lot quicker than probably most in terms of the ages of like 18 to, to 25 compared to most people out there just, you know, on the piss and, and hanging out with their mates. So it's, it's been really good for me. Like looking back now, it's, it's turned me into the person I am today. Um, I didn't, I didn't use anyone, any mental coach stuff then, um, you know, probably wish I did um, because I've used one the last few years at Brumby. So I thoroughly enjoyed, mate. But um, yeah, it just probably wasn't a thing. Like, you know, not back in 10 years ago, no one really used mental mental fitness coaches, etc. cetera. Um, you know, I still really struggle with the homesickness thing. I don't think that, that side of thing gets any better. In terms of the um, ups and downs of rugby, probably I've just had my family, my parents um, to rely on for that. Um, you know, I've got a really close knit family. Um, you know, some of my brothers and family would fly over to, to Perth to see me. And some came over to the UK to stay with me for, for lengths of time to help with things like that. Um, but in terms of the ups and downs of rugby, mate, I don't think much can prepare you for that. Like, you know, some guys probably don't have to go through it too much because they're rock stars and, you know, they've got deals coming out of their ass whenever they're off contract and, like, they're always starting, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're in that middle-tier player, um, the journey of a, a rugby player is very different um, and not not worse or better, you know. I, um, I wouldn't swap my career with anyone because it's made me, um, you know, travel the world and, and meet so many cool people. Um, and if I was a rock star, I probably would have never left the Waratahs, mate, because it's just what you know. And you would have, you know, I would have stayed there close to family, etc. So um, I'm not complaining in any way, mate. Like I've absolutely loved my career, but the ups and downs of rugby, um, you know, at a, at a young age, it's everyone kind of goes through it. Um, and I think sport teams now, especially rugby, are, are you starting to use you know, experienced mental mental fitness coaches. And, um, you know, I think it'll only improve young guys' performances on the field because um, in my short experience the last few years um, with a guy the Brumbies used, mate, I really, really enjoyed it. And I think I probably played some of my better footy in my career. So, um, yeah, I think more more of it. What makes the Brumbies so special? Yeah. Um, so, mate, yeah, I, you know, I get ask that question a lot about Brumbies because you play with, um, you know, guys around the world that it's funny how so many people around the world, no matter how good they are, like all blacks, et cetera, too, that I've played with here in Austin, that the first question is like, what makes a Brumby so good? And you think, Oh, didn't realize like you guys look, look at the Brumbies that way, but um, all around the world in the UK, even here, once you go well at the Brumbies, it's a, it's a huge kind of tick on your resume. Um, and uh, yeah, a, a lot of guys talk about culture. It's like a really easy buzzword to throw out. I think, um, for as long as I've been there, like they've, they've really, there's nothing but excellence there. Like they strive for excellence every day. Um, and that's something that probably I wasn't good at. I'm, I'm quite a chilled out guy that back in my career and 
kind of just happy going through the motions. And then you get to Brumbies and you realise like, no, I've, I've, I've got to be better every single day. Like I've got to improve. Even if I'm not playing this week, I've got to be better every single day. If I'm in the, the bin juice team, I've got to be better every day to make the other guy, the other team, whoever's starting this week better. And there's just a huge buy into that. And as soon as you get to Canberra, um, like we, they don't do passengers well at Brumbies. Like if you're just in it for the wrong reasons or you're there just to get by, you won't last at Brumbies for long at all. Um, they've always had coaches there really hardworking, pride themselves on hard work. Um, and they also get a lot of players that might not have made it at, at the Reds and um, and the Waratahs, but, it, you know, just get to the top eventually through hard work and persistence. And um, their traits that the kind of Brumbies have, have always had and I think always will have because it's the type of players they recruit um, and type of coaches too. Um, is that driven? Is that driven? So, like, I, I think everyone wishes that they could, could create a culture like that. But yep. I think uh, the the knowing about it and then the actual doing of it are like two very different things because you know we've all everyone who's ever played sport has been into a room where there's buzzwords thrown out and you know right. all that kind of bullshit. Is yep. it like what creates the buy-in? Is it is it driven by the players? Do the coaches drive it? I mean, is it something that the whole organisation just lives and either you get on board or you very quickly disappear? Like, what's yeah. your take? It's a bit of a blend, I would say. Like, I always think the teams I've been at, the culture comes from the leadership group. Um, of course, it's, like, super important, whoever's coach, etc. and it's also important whoever the captain is. But, like, one, one person, one coach doesn't make the culture. I think, like, the teams I've been at where they've got, like, a group of, like, five really – um, driven, hard leaders that have a good relationship with the players but also keep everyone accountable. They're the teams that have been really successful. Um, so I think it definitely comes from the players. Um, I also say, like, Canberra, in a funny way, like, you see a lot of um, you see a lot of successful teams. They come from actually, like, small towns. Um, you know, Christchurch, for, for example, with the Crusaders compared to, say, the Auckland Blues, just as, just as an example, or, or the Brumbies compared to the Waratahs. Because in itself, like, I know this might sound a bit stupid, but, like, a lot of rock star people that, like, love the cool, like, perks you get from rugby, they're not going to come down to Canberra because, like, they want to be able to go and, like, go to Coogee Bay on a, on a Saturday night or a Sunday and, like, you know, lots of lots – of, chicks will come up to him and be like, oh, you play for the Waratahs or same and same at probably in, um, Ed, uh, not Eden Park, probably similar in Auckland. There's lots of, lots of things to do, to do compared to Christchurch or, or Canberra, but, um, you know, similar with, with Leicester, you, you kind of not filter out like fuckwits, but you yeah. filter out like people that are coming for the wrong reason. Like you're only coming to Canberra yeah. to play and win rugby games and win championships. Like you don't come to Canberra because you're like, okay, I want to come to Canberra because I want to go sit by Lake Burley Griffin on a Sunday and yeah. like fix like it. No, it just doesn't happen. You know? So it's, it's, it's got a blessing in disguise in that small town kind of feel where like you're coming to Canberra for the right reasons. And it's 
to win to win rugby games. Um, and I think they've got that on their side in terms of recruitment. Um, I also think they prioritise recruitment in terms of not just the talent that someone has, but what what you know apart from the talent, what else are they bringing to the team? Um, you know, I know Dan McKellar is huge on that. Um, you know, he did a lot of really great recruitment at the Brumbies the last four years. And, um, you know, to him, it's obviously important bringing in good rugby players, but he always talked about, you know, bringing the person that you bring in, like, you know, the family kind of culture that he, that he's built at the Brumbies, um, that, you know, it's always been at the Brumbies, but he's really prioritized the last few years has come around from bringing guys in that, um, you know, just have that, have that background of looking after one another. Um, you know, as a big call making Alan captain a few years ago, but I think, you know, Alan more than most, um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a captain that has a better relationship with one to 35 of the guys in the squad. Um, if you're the youngest kid in the squad, Alan will sit with you for, for an hour after training and chat with you. And then same as the, the oldest bloke, obviously Alan has a good relationship with two playing with the, the best players in, in Oz. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it's going to be a big loss there with Dan moving on, but they've always been excellent in their recruitment process. And I'm sure um, whoever's in charge, if it, if it's, you know, probably Tomo, Tomo there at the top, will do a, will do a great job moving forward. And whoever comes in, um, I'm sure apart from just being really good at his job, he'll also be a good person. Tell me about the UK. So you, you've gone over to London Wells. What was that whole experience like? And did correct me if I'm wrong, but you ended up at the Leicester Tigers eventually. Is is that right? I did. I did. I did. So I don't know if you I don't know if you know, um, try to keep it under hidden wraps, but London Welsh, we actually went 42 games losing streak. It was a record, I think it's still in the Guinness Book of Records, mate. Um were you there? That's what, were you there? Yeah, so we went. So I got there just as they got promoted from the championship, and they weren't expected to come up from the champ. This is just from other guys telling me. So they actually they came like second or third in the com, and then the playoff system they actually won like four or six games on the trot and beat Bristol um, to get promoted to the prem. And there were like rules around. You know, not apart from winning the champ to come up, you've got to have like a home field, you've got to have like a training base, all these things. And I don't know how they got it ticked off. Like, mate, we were training in a public park. Um, we were using our change rooms was a public toilet at the park, and then they put <laughs> the gym. The gym was they next to the the park. They put a tarpaulin up and put gym equipment in the tarpaulin. Um, <laughs> so like compare that and to because we did because that that was our home field in the champ but it didn't fit regulations in the prem so about like two hours north of where we were in in um, Richmond in London was a place called Oxford so we actually played all our home games there so our home game we would hop on a bus drive two two out like two and a half hours north to Oxford play yeah. a home game and then drive back to, to Richmond. It was it was nuts, man, but it was all I kind of knew. And, you know, during that year, I realised why we struggled because the setup at, like, premiership teams is incredible. Like, the money, the, the rugby fields, the gyms, everything is so professional. And we were literally like, mate, 
we were scraping the bar- like the barrel at the bottom. Like I remember, I remember the the um, RPA. It's like the equivalent of, of Rupert came in, and um, they're talking about like player salaries that year in the, in the prem. And I think the average player salary in the whole prem was maybe like a hundred thousand pounds or something. Hundred yeah, hundred thousand pounds is like the average. And then they're like, yeah, but London Welsh, their average salary is like £25,000. So we were spending like a quarter of the budget that any other team was spending. And, um, mate, it just went from bad to worse. Like we, uh, we by Christmas, they already knew we were getting relegated. So they sacked the coach. He was from Wales. And then they got another Welsh coach in. But, like, he didn't want to move from Wales. So... He would drive from Wales like like on Tuesday and a Thursday and it literally went to part-time footy. It was um it was it was bizarre, mate. It was yeah. It was it like to me it was all right because it was my first year in England. I was living in a beautiful spot in Richmond. Um I was living with Piri Weepu, the the ex all black and his and his wife Tara. So like I had a bit of a homely feel there. Still, there are a few Tongan boys, Eddie, who I've set up youth in union with. He was there, um, so we had a really good little crew there from Australia and New Zealand hanging out. Um, I was like doing all the touristy stuff in London. My two brothers flew over and stayed with me for like two months, and we would just like it was almost like a bit of a gap year, um, like horrible for footy, but like most guys get to do a gap year where we go straight into, into pro footy. So I never got that chance. And then once, once we knew we were getting relegated, um, you know, I pretty much just enjoyed my time. And luckily enough, I had played a few good games versus like, I always, I always thought like to try and get another gig, I've got to play. Like I ticked off a few games that I've got to go play well in. So like when we were versing Leicester Tigers, Phil Blake was a defense coach there at the time who had me at the force. Um, so I knew I had a, hopefully a bit of an in then. And like my two games versus Leston Tigers were probably my two best games of the year. Um, and luckily then got an offer at Leicester Tigers um, for two years and, and got that. So once I knew I had my career kind of sorted for another two years, it really just turned into like a, a bit of a piss take, mate. Like I remember there were some weeks where, they would, um, towards the end of the Prem, um, for guys that don't know, and the other, you're in like three tournaments. So there's Europe, there's LV, and there's the Prem. And towards the end, when you, when, if you're not making finals, then you've got heaps of weeks off. So like most teams probably train a bit, but because we had like no coach and no setup, they would just be like, oh, boys, have a week off. So that's where like I would hop on Skyscan. I was like half an hour from Gatwick Airport. And I would just hop on Skyscanner and like there'd be flights to Prague and Paris and Rome for like 50 quid return. Um, and I wasn't on much money. So I was kind of just staying in backpackers and trying to do it. But mate, I got to like six or seven different countries in that last three months of my season, just because, you know, there was really no footy to, to be had. And I thought, why waste the opportunity, you know? Um, so footy wise, it was terrible, but, other than that, I, you know, I um, it got me in the it got me in the window to play at a huge club like Leicester, and I had heaps of fun. So, a few ticks there. What was um, won't go too much longer, mate. I'm super grateful for your time. I feel like we could chat for hours. No, mate, I'm I'm quarantined here anyway, mate. So you're probably doing me a favour. It's, it's 
it's the first time I've had the TV off in probably a week, so it's all good. <laughs> um, tell me about the Tigers. Like from the outside looking in, that seems like a very similar type of culture to the Brumbies. Like, what was your take on it from when you were there? It was, mate. Like, um, obviously, coming in from overseas was a bit different. Like, they're notoriously they're very like Leicester driven. Like, you're from the Midlands, you grow up there, you play for Leicester. Like, you bash other teams, you win trophies. It's kind of how it works. Um, Luckily, probably for me, um, I knew Phil Blake who was there. Um, and luckily, Aaron Major came in at the same time as, as me. And um, his style of play suited me a lot more than probably the old school Leicester way. And they brought Major in because Leicester had made like the semis, I think it was like 14 years in a row. And they've obviously won a few trophies in between, but they, they couldn't beat like the Saris and the and the top team for the last few years. And um, so they brought in Mage and wanted to play a more expansive style of rugby and score more points. So um, we still had that set-piece driven team with Richard Cockrell, who's probably the toughest coach I've ever had in my life. He was, he was crazy. Good man, but just crazy. And um, so, mate, this I've never had harder sessions in my life. Um, but then luckily we also had Mage who um, kind of picked a few of us Aussie and Kiwi boys. So we got heaps of experience playing in good, good footy games. Like I didn't sign there as a number one, number eight by any means. They signed a huge Tongan guy called a Petty Fanua. Um, yeah. He's like famous for throwing Johnny Wilkinson like 10 metres in, in, in France. Um, so they had him and they also had Jordan Crane who's, coaching now at Bristol, but he is like a Leicester legend. He had been there for years and years. Um, so I was like third choice number eight. And I came in that year and I think I played more footy than anyone else that year. I think I played about 32 games in the season. Um, and that was purely probably Mage, mate. He came in and kind of saw rugby a lot more holistically than, than um, you know, say, say Richard Cockrell did at the time. But um, every coach has their strengths and weaknesses. And I was just really lucky, you know, Cockers toughened me up and, and really made my set piece come on leaps and bounds. And then made, um, you know, let me play my style of rugby that I really enjoy. And um, I absolutely love my, my three years at Leicester, mate. I um, playing in some of those games, we played in the Heineken semi-final. We had a home semi um, we lost, unfortunately, probably played the worst game of our season versus Racing Metro, Dan Carter and Joe Rocathoco carved us up, um, unfortunately. So it would have been cool to play in a Europe grand final, um, but we made the semis. We made the semis for the Prem every year. We won an LV comp. Um, so we played some good footy and, um, yeah, once again, mate, just really enjoyed the small town kind of vibe at Leicester, Welford Road. I don't think you can beat playing at Welford Road, packed out stadium versus like a Northampton Saints. It was just, you know, if, you, if you're flat rocking up to a ground, it wouldn't last long because the, the atmosphere was just electric. And guys like Richard Cockrell um, and the Youngs brothers, how passionate they were for Leicester and are for Leicester, it just rubs off on you. Um, and then you end up being a diehard Leicester man after um, a few games. Um, so, yeah, mate, really, really enjoyed my three years there. Um, and then it all kind of 
the journey kept kind of changing, mate. I actually had um, another year on my deal, um, which was a what, probably the best deal I'd signed in my in my rugby career at the time. And um, Aaron Major and Richard Cockrell kind of were butting heads the way that Leicester wanted to play. Um, and they ended up <clears throat> getting rid of both of them. Richard Cockrell went to Edinburgh, where he's done a tremendous job there. And um, Aaron Mage went back to the Highlanders. Um, and they brought in Matt O'Connor. And I thought I'd be sweet because he's Australian. He's been at the Brahms previously. Um, boys were like, you know, he loves Stephen Halls and you and Stephen Halls have a similar game, et cetera, et cetera. I remembered, I remember going away. Um, I actually didn't come home that year. I had, um, I had a five-week road trip through Europe planned. So I hopped in the car and just drove through Italy and Portugal, France. It was an unreal trip. But about a week before rocking back up for pre-season day one, I was in P- Portugal just about to finish the trip and, my manager called and um, said, hey, mate, Matt O'Connor wants to sign a few other players and they want to get you off the books. And I didn't see it coming. Like that one I didn't see coming at all because I'd played um, probably the most games, or, you know, the top three games out of anyone the last three years. Um, I'd finished top three players in the players' player voting system, you know, you do. Uh, and, you know, I'd... I don't think I've ever been a rock star, but it's probably some of the better footy I'd ever played. Um, fitted in with the group really well. I just signed a 12-month lease. Like I was, I could see myself there for a while. Um, and yeah, new coach comes in. Um, he signed a few big kind of ball-carrying back rowers he thought would, um, he kind of wanted to take Leicester back. A mage kind of developed Leicester. And then he was like, no, I want to go back to like the Leicester of old and just kind of like scrum and maul and whatever, whatever he wanted. But um, so, mate, I was stuck in Portugal and I thought, well, I don't know what to do. So um, before I go on, I'll talk about the, the ups and downs mental having, you know, this is why it's probably good to have a good support network. Um, don't think I've ever told this story, but Matt O'Connor came in and, um, I started during my road trip. I got like two or three random calls from numbers I never, never seen. I picked up and I was like, "Hey, this is Lockie McCaffrey. Who's this?" And they're like, "Yeah, this is the manager of a club in France, or this is like a manager looking. Yeah, you know, I've heard your names on the on the market." And I was like, the first call I got, I was like, "Nah, I think you've got the wrong name, mate. Like, I'm signed at Leicester for another year, like, really enjoying it. And they're like, oh, the, he, the bloke just hung up. He's like, oh, no worries, mate. I must be wrong. And then a week later, like, a different guy called me and he was like, hey, mate, would you be interested in coming to Bayonne? Um, I heard you're off contract. And I was like, nah, mate, this is a bit weird. Um, called my manager. My manager was like, no, nah, nothing's fine. I called Leicester. Matt O'Connor was like, no, nah, we want you. You're here for another year. Everything's fine. And then Two weeks later, your manager calls and says, no, Leicester actually have just said they don't want you. So, like, yeah, mate, I just moved up my my wife now. Um, we had just met in London. She had just moved up. We literally had li- bought a, a, leased a place in Leicester. We had furnished it. She had just got a job. She hadn't even started the job yet um, and then got told that um, we weren't wanted. So... In the matter of a, a week kind of thing, I had to call the landlord. I said, hey, I know that we've literally been in for two weeks and I've just furnished the house, but 
my jobs just got rid of me. Um, my missus caught up the her job and was like, hey, I know I haven't even started, but I've got to move now too. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of why rugby teaches you to be kind of go with the flow and um, it builds up your adversity so much quicker than any other job because you think you're, you're in a really good spot and then one opinion um, changes everything. So um, I luckily had had Dan back in 2014 when I was at the Brums. He was a defence coach then and I just gave Dan a call myself and said, hey, mate, what's happening at the Brumbies? I've just been given this news and I'd you know, like to come back and give it another crack in Aussie rugby. Um, so, yeah, fortunately, mate, Dan was like, mate, we don't have, you know, we've already signed our squad pretty much, but you can come back and have a crack and, and rip in. Um, and that's what I did. I, I, um, I signed at the Brums for two years. I, that was about probably June or July. And I didn't have to be back till preseason until like October, November. So, um, I actually thought when else will I get three months in Europe to, to travel? So, um, I packed my bags, sent everything kind of back to Australia and kept one bag with me. And I just went traveling for three months. I saw so many beautiful places that I'd never even knew the name of when I first um, went over to the UK. I stayed in this place called Loverton. It's in the top of Norway. It's just unbelievable. I, I flew to Russia, got on the piss with some random Aussies in Moscow and St. Petersburg and um, did a bit more through, through America. And um, yeah, I just, I kind of took a, a bad, bad experience into a good one, mate. And um lucky enough came back to Brumbies and had a probably the most yeah definitely the most enjoyable few years of my career um luckily played some good footy we we won the rugby AU comp which was a highlight and got to work with some awesome players and awesome coaches and um it kind of yeah kept my kept my career going mate and yeah loved every second since do you really run for political office in 2013 it's funny. I saw the um, I saw your notes about that. I um, I wouldn't call it running for office. I um, my my old man. He's on the board and see over a few charities around Sydney. What right to life and a few things. <clears throat> he's a surgeon in Sydney, and the um, DLP Democratic Labor Party asked him to head up a seat of some sort. You know, I'm not a, I don't know the whole system, but you know, he was a fake one seat and um he got me to run in one of the small electorates because it was the eastwood electorate kind of thing and i was playing first grade there at the time um he got me to like you know it was pretty much sitting at a booth during during um ticketing and um i had to do one or two q and a's that you know i wasn't too keen on but <clears throat> yeah i can't really say no to my mum or dad so i still um i still tell him that he stitched me up um, it was actually when I got to Austin, I do a bit of coaching stuff outside of rugby and I went to this local club and, um, I was doing some coaching and stuff. And then at the end, I was like, any questions? And I, you know, normally it's rugby chat and some bloke puts his hand up and goes, Oh, why did you run for politics in Australia? And I was like, mate, <laughs> on the other side of the world, I don't know what he's reading, but, um, yeah, well, it's, it's on your Wikipedia page. So I was I like, normally with this, what I do is. As I said, I write down a few things to talk about. 
And then yeah. depend, depending on the guest, like sometimes you have to fucking I talk way too much, but yeah. you're you're great to talk to because you, you talk heaps. But talk it's, it's, it's it's great. Um are you gonna go into politics after rugby? That was my next one. No, I I don't think so. But living in Canberra, I actually follow it a lot more than I used to, and probably because it obviously as you get older it a lot more. Um, my younger brother is actually in politics. He's he works for um, Anthony. He's a he's a MP of Lane Cove. I should know this. Um, I'm thinking Anthony, not Anthony Bell. Um, but my young my younger brother's actually in politics. Um, has been for a few years. Um, but no, I don't don't think so, mate. Like I just. I wish I could because I think the leadership, not I'm not saying I'm a good leader, but like the leadership in the political world in Australia at the moment is just a shambles, I would say. Um, and I, I think, think you're like, right. Yeah, I think like, or like, like if you're the CEO, if you're the captain, if you're the coach, if you're a, like all politicians should be good leaders at the end of the day because they're looking after people in areas and electorates and all this stuff. But like, I just don't look at many many politicians and think they're leaders. Like they just they should go hand in hand, but at the moment they don't. Um, so I yeah I just I don't know. Um, it's just a yeah I, I don't I honestly don't know who I'll vote for when when I come home or if I come home etc. It's a kind of a sad state in in Australia at the moment. I don't want to get involved too much about it, but. Um, yeah, I, I wish that we had more leaders in, in the political world back home, that's that's for sure. How many more years do you think you'll play for? <sighs> Mate, you've got some good questions. I um I was listening to a few podcasts this morning you've done and one one with Rob, one with BJ. Um and you're nailing me with the good questions. I always um I talked to James Slipper about this a lot, actually, probably too much. Um He's a, he's a real character and like he's got a lot of things going outside of rugby um, and uh, he's obviously he's an unbelievable player and still starting for the Wallabies. So he's got heaps of time. Um, but we talk about, you know, what to do outside of rugby, et cetera, et cetera. So the day you finish, you know, you're sweet. But um, I always told people like when I played rugby, when I was like, at the Waratahs and Brumbies and coming through, I always thought like once you get to 30, like you've had a really good career. Like if someone said to me at the age of 21, or oh, you'll play rugby, pro rugby till 30, I'd have been like, no, I don't think so. Like I didn't. I always looked at guys that played till 30 and thought like, you're a really, really good player. You know, like I don't think I am. I've just had a like weird different journey that's kept me kind of going. Um, but mate, I'm not sure. Like, there's mental, probably the mental side of things challenges me a little bit more than, than physical wise. Like my game physically, like I'm not running over blokes. So I don't physically, I'm not really struggling to, to keep up at the moment. Uh, mentally it's hard being away from, from home for long periods of time. And the good thing that I've got is, um, instead of staying at one team for like eight years where mentally it can be a little bit draining and hard to, you know, not much exciting about, I've had so many different experiences 
Um, and as one of the reasons I wanted to come to Austin and, and also play in Japan is, um, you know, what other job do you get where you can live in Japan for seven months of the year and experience the Japanese culture and play in a good tournament? And then you come to America and live in Texas for five months. Like, you know, that like and bring your family and, you you know, show your, your young, I've got a two-year-old daughter and one on the way, but like, when she grows up to be able to say you lived in Texas and Japan and all these really cool things. Um, I think that's what will keep me playing for the next few years, experiences like that, that I don't want to miss out on. Um, so I'm not sure like when, when punters, they must ask me, I get that a question a lot now. When do you, how long do you think you'll play for now? Cause probably I, I look old and battered, but um, I always tell people after 30, Every year's a bonus. That's like that's the way I kind of look at it. That's what I tell people, punters and stuff. But uh, mate, I feel really good, and I'm um, still playing some okay footy. Obviously, not in the best tournaments in the world, but um, you know, if you can play some good footy in in second tier tournaments and and still really enjoy it and give back in other ways, then um, yeah, I uh, hopefully got a few more good years left in me. Have you got any idea what you want to do after? Like, does something like coaching interest you? Uh, it really interests me. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I guess probably didn't. It, it only has over the last few years. Um, but luckily, because I've been at so many clubs and and had so many experiences with different coaches, um good and bad i've 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 kind of seen how much of a better enjoyable experience it is playing sport playing rugby with a good coach with a someone who's just a generally good person as a coach um that cares about you and i've always said like the the good coaches and i think it's going this way even more um because the younger generation of players um are more in tune with their emotions and and more in terms, you know, it's like rugby. Ten years ago, the guys playing rugby, that was probably most their life, like 90% rugby, where now people, young generation, they've got so much more outside of their life. Like I'd say rugby is probably kind of 60 70% and they've got a, like a, at least a 30% kind of th- hobbies and things outside of their life going on where, where if you're a coach and you don't care about that 30, 40%, you're not going to get a hundred percent out of that individual, that rugby player. Um, And I've kind of seen that changing a little bit. I read a lot of books and articles and podcasts about different coaches that that I like, especially in the NRL and AFL and I've spent some time luckily with a few that I like. Um, But yeah, I just, I think, um, you know, it's so important now in, in the coaching world that you, no matter who the player is, getting 100% out of them is so important. And the only way to do that is caring about the person they are and also getting the best out of them on the training paddock each day. So I, um, you know, I've seen some coaches do it well and other coaches that don't care about the person. And I don't think that any of those teams have been successful that I've been at. And I think it's the direct correlation between the two. Um, and I don't think that will change any time moving forward. Mate, 
I agree totally. Like, even in my experience, I think players can kind of intrinsically tell when someone is doing it for the right reasons. And and yeah. if you're if you're a coach that you know gives a fuck, that kind of comes through. Whereas guys yeah. who are doing it because they want to be a professional coach and they want the next job, blah blah blah, they tend to not yeah. be as successful. Is is that yeah. been your experience? Oh, 100 percent, mate. And guys are smart, like. You know, all coaches will, like, put a photo up of family. Like, they'll all talk about family. But, like, there's only been a few special coaches that I've had that, um, you know, do actions rather than words. Um, yeah. You know, a few little things like Aaron Major um, in at Leicester, he used to get, like, he used to go through the whole squad, the whole roster, and get like, say on a Thursday night, he'd get the hooker over for dinner with them and their family and their kids. And the next Thursday, they'd get the props over with their family. So like by the end of the season or throughout the season, like, you know, the the wives would be friends. The kids would be hanging out. Like, and although it's just one night at dinner, like you would know that they actually care about you and your family. Um yeah. You know, you'll get the like the coach that's been like, "Oh, how are you going?" And you're like, "Yeah, I'm good." But like, is, is that it? Is that the relationship that we're building? Is just based on that? Where when you actually invest yourself um, into someone else's life and into that, like it just builds that relationship and the foundation so much better. Um, a funny, a, you know, funny thing. I actually at Brums, my first year back in, I think it was seventeen. Um, we had a really good, really good roster in that. But like we, um, I'd, I'd read a book about Hardwick at Richmond in the AFL and he's talked about his success on the idea of connection. So making sure everyone in your organization is really connected. Um, and they've actually got, they've brought a guy in, I forget his name now, but they actually brought a guy in to, to run these sessions. But I talked to Dan about it at the end of the year and I kind of, we talked about as a leadership group um, with Dan that like we worked so hard at Brums, et cetera, but we didn't have that like extra 5% of say connection. Like, and I gave, um, I gave Dan the example of like saying me in a different back row. like at the end of the day, you want us to hit someone at a breakdown as hard as we possibly can for the guy next to us. But like, if we don't know his wife's name, if we don't know his kids' names, if we don't know what he's about outside of rugby, then, like, I'll still do it because it's my job. But, like, will I do it with the same intensity? And I, to me, some guys might some guys might do it. Like, someone like Dave Pocock, he's so professional that, like, he's probably quite good at taking emotions out of it a little bit and he just does 100% every single thing he does, he does it a hundred percent. There's, there's freak athletes like that, but most of us are not like that. And most of us need more of a reason to do things at a hundred percent every time. So we actually did a really good preseason camp down with the fly program. It's called, we went down into the snowy mountains and spent three days connecting and did some, um, it wasn't a, like most rugby teams do army camp and uh, we're not doing another army camp. No offense to, the army setup, et cetera, et cetera. But like they're based mainly on physical activities when you did the army camps and like 
mental fitness and like we were already mentally fit like we you know and physically fit that wasn't our problem it was the connecting with guys that have all around from australia and all around the world that have come together to play rugby and like rugby goes quite quick you get on the piss with each other you work hard you play footy and then the season finishes but like when do you spend three days or time actually connecting and knowing like what's your why like why you're here the struggles that you've come and kind of building that building that kind of inner connection and we went down for three days and did some unreal stuff down there um emotionally bringing guys together um knowing what everyone's why and their purpose is and stuff like that and i think that was a huge personally a a reason why um we went on and kind of have been the the better um team in aussie rugby you know, especially with say a squad that wasn't as stacked as as Queensland over the last few years, and um, yeah, I know they've gone on and done similar things the last few years for for preseason camps, and I um, uh, yeah, big believer of of successful teams. Um, at the moment, a lot of them are doing spending more time on making sure the group of players and coaches etc. are really a seriously connected instead of just um doing a one day you know culture piece and then getting on with the season i think there's more to it in the background um you mentioned some books and podcasts that you listen to and read can you throw a few recommendations at me um but apart from your own i um i did, i spent a week with anthony Seawall um at the rabbitos when he was there um and really enjoyed um, his take on things like that. Um, uh, the Scott brothers, I, I read a few articles and I've listened to a few, few podcasts on, on them. Um, Brad at, um, at Geelong has done a terrific job and, and then also been reading some stuff on, on Damien Hardwick at, um, at Richmond and kind of, I love some of the stuff that, that they've got on, they've got a, a leader, a captain in Trent Cochin. And cool thing about him is as a captain, a lot of young guys that come into Richmond, actually they stay with him and his family for like for a week, especially the guys that like are a little bit off the, a bit that have got into trouble, like guys like Dustin Martin that have come in and had some issues, et cetera. And, and other players there. Um, I think Trent Cochin's he's got a wife and I think three kids, but they still just, which is more credit to the wife too, as a family, bringing in these guys are a little bit off the rails at the club. They bring them in, they, you know, cook them dinner for a week or two, treat them like family. And the effect that has on them turning around their season is, is really cool. Um, and I know not everyone can just bring someone into their family home and, and, you know, do things like that, but it's just funny. Like, to get something out of someone else, you've got to invest yourself in them first. Like a lot of, a lot of like relationships are about what can I get? Like give, 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 but no one wants to invest themselves in first to get something back where you, you look at guys like Trent Cochin and, and Damien Hardwick there and, and the stories of them investing first and now reaping so many rewards in, you know, Dustin Martin now is, is uh, he's the best player in the NFL. He's won them two or three finals and he's a, he's a freak. Like a lot of clubs wouldn't have had a Damien Hardwick and a Trent Cochin. And Dustin Martin might have, no matter how talented he was, he might have gone off the rails or 
changed lots of clubs and we would have never seen the best out of him. But because they've invested in Dustin Martin, he's repaid them tenfold and and now they're three or four premiership titles there. And it's just cool stories like that that I think are, that are um, you know, special and things you can take from other organisations or clubs. And hopefully one day if I ever get the opportunity to, to coach or be involved in sport, um, something I'd try, and try to remember. Um, what's that old saying? No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. That's yeah. still, still so massive. Um, yeah. Tell me about tell me about the work you and Big Eddie do with the youth in union. Yeah, so it's like all probably charities, but especially charities that run offshore the last two years. It's been really tough. Um, but yeah, Eddie brought up the idea years ago um, to just give like the you know the opportunities that most of us make playing rugby um, are great, and we have great experiences, but um, you know, to try and give back to the to the young to the youth over back in Tonga. Um, that also, with you know, the fact that a lot of the players that grow up in Tonga, etc., or Tongans playing all around the world, the amount of funds financially they send back to the islands in Tonga, Fiji, or Samoa that help not just their family but their village and and their cousins and everything on the island is incredible. Like you just you wouldn't believe how generous these guys are. Um, they see their rugby career not as in setting themselves up for life, but in terms of giving back to their parents and, and their family. And then, as you know, the generosity there doesn't stop. Like they then help their cousins and their f- family. And it's just a, it's a beautiful culture to, to, to see firsthand. Um, so yeah, mate, in long story short, we started youth in union, um, you know, it took a while to set up going through all the loopholes of setting up charities and stuff the right way. Um, but we had some really good guys help us. Someone like Guy Reynolds, who's been involved in Macquarie Sports and the rugby world in, in Sydney and, and Australia, has been a huge help for us there. Um, and, yeah, we started, we started doing trips every year. The first year was just me and Eddie. <clears throat> the second year we had about six of us. Um, took a video guy with us too and a few rugby players. And then the, the third year, we had about 17 people, volunteers, rugby coaches. Um, Piri Wupu came, Manasa Mataeli that just signed at the force. He's been at the Crusaders. His wife that plays for the Blackfern. So we had some like seriously good coaches and then some really good volunteers. Um, and we probably did four or five clinics that, that week. We're there for about 10 days. Would have been nearly two and a half thousand kids we visited throughout the whole trip. Um, we took a huge container, DHL, um, luckily funded a container, and mate, we took over like nearly two thousand rugby balls. Um, we had over a thousand kilos worth of playing kit from all like from Brumbies, Waratahs. Like it's funny in the rugby world, you ask for something, and um, there's always helping hands. It's it's a great kind of rugby family um as you know mate so we got so much stuff um and then covid kind of hit we were were planning on doing a trip every 12 months there's different islands over in tonga so there's four islands and we've visited three and we've got uh, to to go to one more and we had planned everything the governor there was getting ready for us and then covid hit so 
Um, we've got two containers in Sydney full of stuff. Um, but the hardest thing's getting over. We actually got New Zealand, the New Zealand High Commission in Tonga saw the work we were doing and um, they wanted us to come on board and do it more full time. So Eddie was going to go over and run it more full time and I run things from the Australian side and um, and Eddie hasn't been able to get over there, unfortunately. So there's a, there's a High Commission New Zealand grant over there to help us do our work. Um, there's two big shipping containers we're ready to take over. We've just got to wait till the big fella can actually get on a flight and, and get over there. So hopefully in the next kind of six weeks, um, Eddie can get over. He's a passport holder, et cetera. But it's just, yeah, as you know, with travel mode, it's, it's a nightmare with all that stuff. So hopefully that kicks off again. And in the some some point in the future, we can we can start our clinics back up. There's a lot of people that hit me up and, want to come on the next trip um you know there were some really cool stories from last trip there was a 13 year old from Canberra grammar that came over with his dad um and you know the the kids in Tonga get a lot out of it but you see these guys that have never seen Tonga and and what the kids kind of actually have over there the the the, the basic kind of setup they've got and guys get as much out of it going over and seeing that, um, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, people think Tonga's like Fiji, like you go there, there's resorts. It's very different. Like Tonga's as third world as you can get. Um, kids are running around in just base, you know, shorts, no, no shoes, no flip flop. It's a very poor country. Um, and yeah, it's just good to be a little bit, you know, be able to give back in a little way and, and know so many people in the rugby world that are that are generous and and help out too. So hopefully um, we get over there then later. I'd love to come next time you guys go. Uh, I actually made a video for a Tongan mate of mine on uh, Ofu, yep. on one of the islands there, and mate, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. So I was meant to go soon, actually, to make a video for his company that he's doing. Um, yeah. So. I'd love to come over at some stage with you guys. That would be unreal. Uh, thank you. I'll um, um, keep you posted. Mate, that would be, be great. Only a couple more questions, mate, and I'll let you go. Um, oh, I've really, really, really enjoyed this. Um, you've obviously mentioned a few places that you've been with rugby. Have you got, like, a favourite touring destination of, of anywhere that rugby's taken you? Oh, where rugby's taken me? Um <clears throat> Um, it'd probably be my first tour. Um, my first trip away with Super Rugby was Cape Town, so I was like 20 years old. Um, the Waratahs had a very good team, and I like wasn't playing at all. Um, and then the week before we were going on a, I think back then it was like three week tours to South Africa, so. Back then, the week, the game before, Dean Mum got suspended. Um, one of the back rowers broke his, like, foot or something, like, got injured the night before. And, like, suddenly, two or three players got injured. And um, I remember going home and being like, surely they won't take me to South Africa. Like, that would be a dream come true. And, um, and then, like, I didn't get a call or anything. And, like, the flight was the next morning at 6 a.m. So I was like, no, it's fine. And 
I was chatting to Kane Douglas and like Rob Horn and that because they were obviously going and they're like, no, I think you're coming. I think you're coming. I was like, no, nah, mate, I didn't get the call. And then like at like 10 o'clock at night, I was going to bed and I think it was Webby, Chris Webb, the manager, he um he called me or he texted me and he's like, mate, see you in the morning. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I haven't, no one called me. And he's like, oh, I thought someone called you. Thought the physio had told me I was coming and no one had told me. So he's like, yeah, mate, you're on the flight. You're coming, like, you know. So I was pretty much last pick for this tour. So we went to Cape Town and um, I was 20 years old and, like, I think I was uh, rooming with Will Cordwell, but, like, Lottie Takira, all the big dogs, like, all guys that were just super freaks um, that I looked up to. Phil Wall was the captain. Training with him it was just, like, the dream come true for me at the time. Um, he was a hero of mine kind of coming through. So I always will have, like, Cape Town and South Africa as a, just a special memory, but somewhere I always loved going back to tour. Um, I think like you play rugby, obviously to, to win trophies, but also like experience, like really cool atmospheres and, uh, and not playing international footy. I haven't had that like a lot of boys, but always when you go to South Africa, it always was an awesome culture, uh, awesome atmosphere, all their rugby grounds and just beautiful, beautiful stadiums to play at. So, um, I always loved, always loved that. Um, in terms of a special memory, mate, like I've been to some really cool places, luckily, um, in my career. If Sorry, it's mate. not, then it's, um, yeah, there you are. Sorry, mate. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, luckily I've been able to travel to some, some, some really cool places, um, in my career and also when I finished my time in the UK, I like kept a list of places I'd gone and I'd been to 23 countries in Europe um, throughout my time, like my three and a half years playing in the UK. So like things like that, um, things like going to Rome for three days on a weekend off and just seeing the Coliseum and stuff like that. Um, you know, would be just as big a highlights as anything in, in my career, mate. Being able to see the world has, has been fantastic. Last question, mate. What is the one bit of advice you would give 18-year-old you? Oh, 18-year-old me. <clears throat> he probably wouldn't listen, but um, <laughs> probably, probably just to enjoy it. Like I've... Um, I probably have struggled at times um, being probably to like trying to know what's happening in a year's time or two years time or um, having like long-term goals. Um, I've always like looked at guys that just live in the moment and enjoy the moment and think like, Oh, I'd love to be a little bit more like that. Um, and I think especially in rugby or sport in general, um, if you're not enjoying the moment and if you're not just getting the best out of the day, like the, the moment you're in or the, the day you're in or the training session you're in, then you kind of fall behind pretty quick. Um, it's no matter what you do in sport, you just can't predict what's happening in, in a year or two's time. Um, it's one opinion at the, you know, at the end of the day, one coach will think you're the best player in the world and one will think you're rubbish. Um, mm. And, Nothing you can do about that. That's just that sport. 
Um, and hopefully the harder you work and the better you play, then more coaches will think you're good instead of crap. Um, but there'll always be one that thinks you're, you're rubbish. Um, and once you realize that it's not personal, um, you know, like when I, when Michael, my relationship with Michael Foley, probably cause I was younger, really, really found that a personal attack on like me and, and how hard I was working and my injury and really struggled mentally with that where at Leicester, um, when Matt O'Connor got rid of me with a year to go, I went into the offices and I said goodbye to everyone. And I said, good luck. I said, good luck to Matt O'Connor. And I didn't agree with what he was doing, but I'd kind of grown up and I thought, you know, he's got a wife and kids that he's trying to look after. And deep down, he thinks signing these other players is the best way to help him and his kids and his family. And, um, once you see it like that and don't take it personally, um, I think that's the way to have longevity in sport because, um, like physically, um, you can do whatever it takes, but like mentally, the longer you go through your sporting career and the ups and downs, um, it's harder to mentally enjoy it every day, like the repetition and, and things. And once you can, just live in the moment, do your best day in, day out, but enjoy the journey um, and not worry about what's happening in a year or two's time. I still struggle with it, so I'm not preaching like that's what I do. But um, that's what I would tell 18-year-old Lockie, mate. Just enjoy going to Cargo Bar with, with Robin Kane um, and just just making friends along the way and just um, – just enjoying it mate because yeah I probably there were times I definitely um you know struggled with the ups and downs of it and and was stressed that I was off contract in two or three month time and I didn't have a gig and I thought I'd have to retire at 23 or 24 or you know 25 at London Welsh and here I am you know playing in Japan and Texas at, at 31 and and loving life and having some awesome experiences and I um, probably never thought I'd I'd be saying that. So, yeah, just tell those young young footy players. It's so hard. The nature of the sport we're in. Um, always looking ahead to the next deal, um, especially for that mid tier player like me. That you don't have blokes um, and teams throwing themselves at you. But um, the more you enjoy the moment, normally the better you play. The more, um, the more your teammates enjoy you around the, the club, etc., and it's just a flow and effect from there. Great way to finish, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Um, fantastic, mate. Thank you. This no, mate. Awesome to chat. You're doing a really good job with your podcast, and um, I actually didn't realise how many um, awesome people you've talked to in in different circles, coaching, playing wise, business wise, with BJ and stuff. And it was, um, yeah big fan of, of your podcast uh, you've got a you've got a listener in me from now mate so keep it up thank you thank you very much mate um so this probably won't be out for a few weeks but i'll i'll let you know when it's out but, um, hopefully you recover quickly from covid and get over to japan mate. yeah no thanks buddy thanks very much and um we'll keep in touch thanks a lot have a good one mate yeah mate see you bro catch you mate 
All right, guys, that's today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this week's episode or any of our episodes, please make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. And please make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Wandering Bear Sports. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you again next week.